Kat Sparks is a multi-award winning Australian author, editor and artist. She's the former fiction editor of Cosmos magazine and has dabbled as a kitchen hand, video store clerk, assistant library technician, media monitor, political and archaeological photographer, graphic designer, guest lecturer, festival director, panellist, fiction judge, essayist, creative writing teacher and editor of Agog Press. What an impressive list. I couldn't edit anything out of that. Kat has a BA in Visual Arts, a postgraduate certificate in Editing and Publishing, and a PhD in Creative Writing concerning the intersection of eco-catastrophe science fiction and contemporary climate fiction. She's had more than 70 stories published and won 24 awards. Sparks' latest book is Dark Harvest, a varied, imaginative and very cool collection of colourful science fiction stories in a range of settings, some set on Earth, some out in space, some in the present, some in the future. Dark Harvest is a very enjoyable collection in which many of the stories left me wanting to read more about the characters and worlds. I'm Helen Stubbs, this is Galactic Chat, and welcome to the podcast, Cat Sparks. Hi Helen, great to see you again. Great to see you too. How are you? How has 2020 been? Oh, you know, it's been a bit of a mess, like it has for everyone. Um, comparatively, yeah. I've done okay, as long as I don't think about the three trips I didn't go on to interesting, cool places all around the world. Um, yeah. New Zealand being one of those for Worldcon, I'm sure. Yes. Well, at least we got to do that one online. Um, but I was also going to the US to go to ICFA. Um, I was going to go on the way, pop into New Orleans to photograph walls, which as I do, yeah. uh, I'm staying with some friends and we were going down together and it was all going to be really cool. So that didn't happen. Yeah. And Rob and I were going to go to the UK for, um, oh, what's it called? I've even forgotten the name of it now. StokerCon. StokerCon. Oh. Um and that was going to be cool and Kim Newman was going to be one of the guests and uh, I was presenting an academic paper and yeah. catching up with friends and, 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 and then we were going to go to Egypt. We were going to go on a tour of uh, the Valley of the Kings. and all. Anyway, that didn't happen. And, I mean, that's interesting. So some of that will still be there in the future and some of it won't. And I feel like this is a bit of a sign of the times, of these apocalypses that we're coming into. Some well, things... See, are going yes, aren't they known about this it should have been me considering my phd topic but i was two hours away from getting on a plane to go to the u.s yeah. when i when because ICFA had not been cancelled at that stage and yeah. you know the virus news was sweeping and I, I was literally talking to my friends in the u.s on you know messenger the day the night before i was flying and i said oh should i be going and they were going yeah come over it's great it's fine everything's fine I went to bed eight hours later. I'm there in my pajamas. I log on, and they're going, "Don't come if you haven't left. Do not get on that plane." Yeah, right. It's quick, and um, I mean, I, even though I know what the word pandemic means, but it still didn't seem real. So, yeah. Anyway, if the the worst thing that's happened to me is I didn't get to lost a bit of money and didn't get to go on my trips, but not, that is nothing compared to what so many people globally are struggling through. Absolutely, so yeah. much death and. And well, sickness and, and people losing their income poverty. and people, the yeah. poverty. Like we're going backwards in time. We're going decades back in all the gains that have been made in women's rights and yeah, 
but alleviation in many countries is just sliding straight back. I've decade. noticed that personally that it's women who um pick up the extra domestic labor, the child oh, labor, and it's their careers who are been paused or gone backwards so this is this is how we've done things for 10,000 years and it has not changed yeah 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 true and so with the whole build back better thing do you think that what's the slowdown with COVID presents an opportunity um for eco environmental change or not absolutely this despite all of those things we were just talking about this is the best opportunity we have to fight climate change yeah that's interesting um, be- because for the simple fact that before covid hit one of the, the lines that was always uh, trotted out by governments and no one could dis- and business and no one could dispute it was yep. we cannot afford to change many of our systems they are too ingrained mm. we overnight we have changed because we had to change right and Absolutely. so we keep changing now is the time to springboard to solid renewable futures and yeah. just change the way we change capitalism. We may not be able to get rid of it completely, but we need to do something to stop the gap between the, the, the rich, the super rich and the poverty stricken from widening further because that is just a fast road to hell. Yeah, and, and now this, is the time. This has proven the importance of public infrastructure, hasn't it? Like the health Absolutely. system, for example. Um, yeah. So we can hope that maybe this might create a, a positive change. It could be something that good that comes out of the whole COVID drama. Well, I mean, the, the thing about renewables too um, is around the world where they are being implemented, it is successful. It is economically viable. Yeah. Coal is dead. In, in 10 yeah. years, there are going to be, there's not going to be any coal. Um, gas is a stopgap and it's no good. Yeah. We need to take the plunge right now. And yeah. the thing is this, is, this is what I've learned in the last couple of years is, you and I, other citizens, whatever we do as individuals is not what matters. Any, you know, we, we've we've been told, it, you know, we need to step up. We need to force our governments and our corporations. Yeah, right. To step up we, because nothing we do makes any difference if they don't fix the infrastructure. Right. And do you think um, literary activism plays a role in that? Um, I do. Yeah. I think all forms of activism are really important right now. Yeah. Um, I think that's. For things to change, we have to believe they need to change and that they can change. And yeah. one of the interesting statistics I learned during my PhD was to cause social change, you don't need 50% of your, of your democratic population to come on board. You need oh. 3.5%. Oh, is that all? It's oh, right. Interesting. It's change and it all goes like dominoes. Yeah. And that that really works. And so the, the analogy I like to think about is marriage equality, how quickly that changed once enough people were on board with that. Yeah, right. You know, it, it was like a, a sweeping tide and there, were, there was no revolution. Suddenly yeah. marriage equality is legal, pe- people can marry and who couldn't before and, and nothing horrible happened. Yeah. You know, nothing horrible happened. Society did not collapse and, and now it's just how it is. Yeah. And all of that flows through the arts. Like you, if you notice the, uh, I've been noticing in recent years, all, for example, the joke I make is all television shows have lesbians in them now. It's just how it is, you know. Yeah. But, you know, suddenly all sorts of shows have gay characters and then we'll move into trans characters and all, yeah. all sorts of stuff. Non-binary characters. Non-binary characters, and it's just a flow. It's not a revolution. It's a flow. And so mm. arts plays a very important part in showing people they don't have to be afraid of something that wasn't mm. like 
wasn't like they thought it was or wasn't what it was Change. like with a repeat or something. Interesting. Um, so your PhD explored the intersection of eco-catastrophe science fiction and contemporary climate fiction. Can you tell me a bit more about that and any other surprising aspects of your research? Um, yes. So um, if, if you think about climate, I mean, all fiction really now is climate fiction, anything yep. set in the real world now. Yep. But it wasn't before um, the, the science fiction of, in fact, earlier than the 60s and 70s, but I, you had to start somewhere with a PhD. Um, so I started there. There are a lot of stuff that today you could look at it. A lot of science fiction of the time was about pollution and environmental degradation and um, existential risk and stuff, uh, these kinds of issues. But it was looked, they were looked on as cautionary tales, like mm -hmm. if we don't change, then these bad things will happen. Yep. Whereas what uh, what we, similar material, which is still science fiction, it's classified mm -hmm. as science fiction, but that, that has been written now, they're not cautionary tales anymore because they're happening. It, it's accepted that these things are happening. Yeah. Um, it's just a matter of to what degree. Okay. And so what I found was why climate fiction is not just a subset of science fiction, it's become its separate genre, right. although you can still classify a lot of that material as science fiction. Sure. Why it's separate is through who reads it and who writes it. Right. So you have a lot of lit big L literary authors writing stuff that to science fiction fans looks like science fiction, yeah. but they're not telling it like that. They're not talking about it like that, and I don't think they're thinking about it like that. So where does, like, Oryx and Crake fit in all that? Well, see, that is a, that is a science fiction novel, mm -hmm. um, and of course, then we get into the Atwood debate about you know a comment she'd made many years ago that took um, turned many science fiction fans against her mm. when she said she didn't write science fiction. But um, I've, I've actually got some quotes from her somewhere about that, but I won't go mm. down that road. I'll just say <laughs> um, what she meant was she well she she regards speculative fiction and science fiction as being different. Now, yeah. I don't agree with that. At all, okay. I think speculative fiction is an umbrella term, and science fiction comes under it. But at the end of the day, I think what she was trying to say was she writes stuff that is plausible, and she regards a lot of what is called science fiction as not being plausible. Therefore, it's a different category. That's Fair all she enough. was saying. That's it. And I think we should just leave her alone because she's a yeah, I agree. And a great role model to us all, and yeah. eighty years old and still punching way above her weight. Yeah. I mean, you know, and the um, work she's written is just like mind blowing. Oh, like I mean, the Handmaid's Tale. The Handmaid's Tale had three. It it had three um, generations of relevance. It was when it yeah. came out in eighty five, um, and that so it was relevant. Then it was dismissed thirty years later as no longer being relevant, and then it kicks back in as being relevant to right here, right now. Yeah. Quote Greta. No, rather, but. Mm -hmm. um, um, so yeah, it's a science fiction book. I would call that. I would class that as science fiction. It the was Handmaid's Tale. Yeah, I uh, know. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, well, no. yes, as well, and as well as dystopia. That's another yeah. word that's used a lot too. They're yeah. both science fiction novels. Yeah. Atwood is very careful. Uh, she says that when she writes speculative fiction, mm -hmm. she doesn't include anything in those books that isn't already plausible. Right. So there was nothing in Handmaid's Tale that hadn't already happened historically. Right. It's just hadn't all happened together in that in that way in the same place, but yeah, you know. interesting. So uh, you know that makes perfect sense to me. But mm. um, it doesn't. The labels. I mean, the la climate fiction. Other terms are anthropocene fiction. Yeah. Um, 
capitalist fiction because we mm. a lot of us trace the roots of all our current ills back to the birth capitalism of capitalism and profits. Yeah, but well, not just profits. It's it's not. In fact, it's not even just the system. It's the um, neoliberal machine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the idea that profits matter more than anything else. Yeah, drives me nuts. Is that we live in this rich, rich country full of so much, and yet, like, no one should be hungry. No one. Yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. we should share this stuff. Yeah, and I don't mean like a pack of hippies, even though I totally am a hippie. I mean, it's just we have the mechanisms. We just need to organise the mechanisms for better. fairer distribution. And yeah, um, because disenfranchised, unhappy people, mm. you know, unsurprisingly, yeah, that reflects back on the society. So if yeah. why, you know, that there's no better way of describing what I'm trying to say here than the whole bunker culture thing. I don't mm-hmm. know if you know much about this. The super rich people around the world who are looking at climate change and going, oh. Yeah, I'm going to build myself at like the nuclear bunkers. In I, this was um, part of the inspiration for I think as the ship sails on, mm. was it? Where these people are just floating through a destroyed ocean. Um, yeah. And a, yeah, a, no, yeah. Bunkers, because the whole thing is just nuts. It's like yeah. going back to the 50s and, you know, building these shelters and there's enough food in there. And so like, what do you think you're going to do? Afterwards. Like, yeah, after, I know, right. Like, the planet is will be radioactive for 2,000 years. What do you think you're going to do? With and, of course, then in uh, the road had the, the badger hunters and they were the people who went around looking for the little um, exhaust few, you know, air things and yeah. digging the people out and stealing their food. So it's like yeah. apparently – um, there are mega rich people around the world who are building these little things and yeah. they're like having these um, con- consultations with um, futurists and that. It's like, so how do we get people to work for us in our bunkers? And it's like, this is not going to work. No. Um, and and I, 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 I actually written a lot of bunker stories because I, lo- I just yeah. love them. It's I feel like awesome. like something similar to that is I see people almost eyeing off other planets as like, can we go and live on Mars? Like, this no, is the Elon Musk can't. thing, right? Yeah. This is the Elon Musk thing, and it's like it's all very well. And I'm a sci-fi nerd. Of course, I want to go to I Mars. I know, I do too. But, but, <laughs> but, Mars isn't going to be for everyone, is it? It's no. going to no. We're going to have the stinking trash pile of Earth, and and you know the elite on Mars or whatever. But how could it even work if you can't if live on a perfectly livable planet? You can't no. live on an unlivable planet either. Well, this is it. And, of course, Kim Stanley Robinson has written very well about this with Aurora. That's the book to read if you want to know why that's not going to work out so well. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, but, again, it's like what about – I mean, Musk is obviously some level of genius. What about putting all that into – Saving the planet. Saving the planet. Like, you know. Yeah. You, and, you know, there there are billionaires out there who have done some good work and are doing good work and they could, yeah. they could be – you know, using their power for good instead of evil. You know, I mean, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has almost wiped out polio in the world. That's yeah. pretty impressive. Very impressive. Yay, vaccinations. They're really Yay, good things. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, yeah, it's a troubled time we're living through and there is, and I hate to be the one to have to say it, but there is a very good chance that we aren't going to live through it. Yeah. That's if my PhD did one thing, it, it was really made me understand yeah. how precarious our situation is and yeah. things are a lot worse. I finished that PhD I think um two years ago yeah um that was an optimistic 
my, my viewpoint then was optimistic. Things are a lot worse than they were when I handed that thing in. Yeah. You know, because there's just things are happening so much faster. Mm. Um, and it, it's not just the glaciers aren't just melting from the top. They're being cut away with warm water underneath them as well. Yeah. You know, and the, the, the sea, the bed of the ocean is microplastic. There's just mm. all this stuff. Um, and the thing I think about all the time as a science fiction writer and reader and nerd is that, you know, we all we have this expectation of there being other planets and we will get to them and all of that. Um, but we have no evidence at all that there is any life of any kind mm. anywhere but on Earth. No evidence, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is it. We're not just playing with our own species and we're not mm. just playing with the other species on Earth. We mm. are playing with all the life there is. Yeah. And there is not even a word in our language to describe the, the scale of that crime. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So. What else would you like to talk about? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a bit of a conversation stopper, isn't it? Um, but, I mean, knowing all that as well, your stories are quite, are like, bright and resilient and quite fun I almost felt a little guilty for uh enjoying these apocalypse stories so so much so um yeah um do you have a favorite within your collection um I'm quite fond of my 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 newest story in there hacking Santorini yeah um just because I think it was something a little bit different um and it has got a very light tone. And I'm, what I'm trying to do is I've always written quite dark stories and I'm really trying to lighten up a bit yeah. um, I'm, because I am very impressed by the solar punk movement and I'm, yeah. I do participate in that myself, but my, I'm still too dark for that and I really want to yeah. be, I, I'm, I believe we need to start writing a, about the future, type of futures we want to live in. Absolutely. So that because, sort of hope. But that's hard. Like, I mean, that stuff we were just oh, describing yeah. about how, like, literally the world is coming to an end. So um, I guess there's a question of morality too, like which to represent there. But um, but hope well, is, is important. It is coming to an end. We ha we can do things, okay? Mm. We can't just mm. – what I'm saying is it's it's such it, – it is very important and I – it is the most important question, thing, thing of our um, issue of our time, mm. but none of us can carry the weight of that on our shoulders. It, it's, it, yeah. you know, I, I, I was at a, a party. I actually went to a party recently. Oh, yeah, oh that's sorry, party. But I'm talking to a couple of friends and I am start my ranting, as I do, because I rant like this all the time. I'm surprised I've got any friends left. <laughs> and, um, oh. and they're both looking at me while I'm talking and I realise as I'm ranting, it's two women both great people, both mothers, both responsible citizens, both fabulous people in every way. But it, they're just being, I'm talking and they're just, it's just like a jet washing over them. It's not that they're not listening. Mm. It's not that they don't care because they are listening and they do care. But what are they supposed to do about any of this? You know, that you, yeah. this, this thing, and this is how a lot of us feel. Um, how, what can we possibly do? Yeah. You know, we have no power. Yeah. Um, I, this is why I've become become more of a fan of civil disobedience than I certainly ever have been since mm. I was a teenager because I do think we need to be visible in our 
um, challenging what our governments, the decisions they're making, because yeah. they are supposed to work for us. Yeah, we forget that sometimes they're not just an institution; they represent us in the world. Mm. You know, and infrastructure, like you said, is well. Australia is, for example, Australia. I think it's like one in four private homes has solar now, mm. and it's interesting because it's not because one in four homes is full of greenies it's because of the financial incentives for a lot of it it is yeah. economical in a country with as much sun and yeah we have so um these sort of things are like um need that's a model that other places can copy yeah. you know going down gas road now as a recovery is just mm. it is we should be building on our successes yeah for renewable you know, energies just, yeah and it, and it's the whole it's not easy it, it you know and there's, but the only solution is we cannot keep going down this road because what a lot of people also don't don't understand is we talk about temperature degree degree rises. So it's all the yeah. Paris is about sticking to one point five degree. You know, uh, um, well we've passed that, right? Yeah. Two degrees doesn't sound like very much. We will not survive four. Okay. Yeah. Not because of the heat, because of the flow-ons from the heat as well. Yeah. You know. Like ecological and collapse and yeah, exactly. And then, yeah. then you get war. Um, but at the moment, I think we have some. It's something around like um, uh, the re- refugee numbers moving around the world now at the moment is something like sixty-five million, something like that. We're looking at a billion displaced people. Yeah, when we get to numbers like that by twenty fifty, that's UN. That's a UN figure. Yeah. Um, Imagine that a billion people who cannot stay where they are. Yeah, and what's the world? What's the world population now? Is it around seven or eight billion or something? So it's like uh, I think we're around seven. So it's so like a seventh nine, of the population. That's we're looking at nine point eight billion by twenty fifty. Mm. I think rough. I mean, give or take, you know. But mm. uh, but this is it. It's like there are places people are not going to be able to live. They can't live yeah. there. Yeah, the places are too hot already. And then you've got all mm. the wet bulb events yeah. that to happen and apparently Kim I have not read it but Kim Stanley Robinson's new book deals with starts with a wet bulb heat in India and it's um yeah so yeah crowded cities that too much concrete all this sort of stuff is all going to impact and so it's not just the 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 extremes of heat and cold it's the flow-on effects yeah cuts in supply chains yeah and you know so a lot of the stuff that we've seen with the COVID which was a has been, believe it or not, a, a mild mm-hmm. pandemic in terms of what, and there will be other pandemics, and that's another thing because yeah. of our farming technique, yeah. all of this. Like, it's all collapsing. Mm. All, the, all the industrial revolution stuff is falling back on itself, and so now's the yeah. time. I'm sorry, I'm just ranting at you. No, no, look, it's um, it's it's all really relevant, and I'm just thinking that Australians are just going to buy lots of toilet paper. And that it's not enough. It's not going to help. So protected here. We are. We are so lucky. I mean, I cannot tell you how beautiful Canberra is in spring. Yeah. I've only lived here five years, and it's just I. I'm just always wandering around with my jaw open at how stunning the flowers. Yeah. How lucky I am to be. I mean, the other thing I think we need is science fiction writers in government. Like, well, it's it is very interesting that I I actually tended for a job. Last year, I, I didn't get the job, but uh, I put in a, a tender for it, which yeah. was um, for a government department looking for science fiction writers to write climate scenarios. Yeah, right. so looking at transition towns. The I idea didn't of, like, give you this job. Are you kidding? 
Holy dooly. Well, you know how government works. Oh, well, I don't know if you know how government works, yeah, but I have yeah, I worked many years in government and it's yeah. the it's the paperwork is is just horrific. And yeah. and in their attempts sometimes to be fair, it, it can just you can just end up with the yeah. flattest field possible. Anyway, I didn't actually They missed out. <laughs> hilariously I didn't even want the job but I felt morally obliged to go for it because yeah. I was so someone alerted me someone I didn't even know personally texted me and said you know a Facebook friend said this job sounds like you and so I thought oh god I'm, I just stepped out of the PhD and I thought I, I I can't have this qualification for nothing I've got to go for it but anyway yeah. the point my point is these are jobs now like um writing scenarios like climate scenarios and stuff um i I have done one job for the Department of Defence. Yeah, uh, writing, um, doing, giving a talk on what how I felt about um, future warfare. There were a few of us invited to do awesome. this, and that was amazing because it was a lecture theatre full. Uh, there was some Australian science fiction writers, an American futurist, John Scalzi was uh, also there, um, talking to all these great about what we felt about the future of warfare. Yeah. That's like, can you imagine? That's a job. We got paid good money for that. That's really cool. And I met a really cool futurist on from that too who I'm still in contact cool. with. Cool. And also terrifying, I'll say, thinking about AI and warfare. and. Well, that's my new area of interest, like as well as trying to write um, positive scenarios, which by no means I need should be utopias, can I also point out. We're talking about practical pathways to livable futures. Awesome. Um, rather than just too much dystopia, which I have, and apocalypse, which I have certainly written a lot of. Um, I'm very, very interested in artificial intelligence because what I think is missing from a lot of the storytelling, not all of it, but a lot of it, is we all know what happens when the Skynet turns on us uh-huh. about our robot slaves when they turn on us. Yeah. What about when we make we make an intelligence that makes another intelligence, etc. Yeah. And we end up with beings we cannot communicate with. Mm. We can't communicate with them and they may not be interested in us at all. In I've the same way read that, that scenario. They might just say, whew, see you later. But, not even go. Just yeah. do what they do and we yeah. may not understand what they do. Yeah. And they may not, we just may not be very interesting to them at all. And yeah. so I'm now writing a suite of stories set in coming environments like yeah. this so the idea that they're not going to be negative miserable stories that sounds so wonderful cat so that's what I'm in between all the other things very, in canberra very cool um the anthology has a really nice flow to it did you design that flow or did your editor assist you with um composing it or? um i ian waits uh, from Newcon Press was who um, asked me to do the collection in the first place. It was hilarious actually because I was in Dublin at Worldcon and Ian's a lovely guy. Him and his wife Helen are lovely, and I met them. Th- he he commissioned a story from me years ago, and we then since we've met in at these conventions and stuff. Yeah. Um, and Bruce, I was just sitting with him in the book dealer's room, and he goes, "Oh, he's got all his stock in front of him," and he goes, "Can I really like to do a collection of yours?" And I'm going. Really? You want, why would you want to do that? And he goes, well, why would I ask you if I didn't want you to do it? It was just, I don't know, it was just a weird thing. All the networking yeah. people set up for themselves to do and then I just fall into things like. Yeah, yeah. Bizarrest of ways. But anyway, so what he wanted was a best of 
but I'd already got the collection I'd got with um, Ticonderoga, the Bride the Price. The Bride Price, yeah. Um, 2013, I think. I didn't want to reprint any of those, even no. though I just thought because if anyone is interested in my work at all, they would probably have that and I yep. didn't want to duplicate that. So these are so, all newer stories, aren't they, and four yeah. of them from your PhD, is that correct? Yes, yes. Yep. Yes, and so I only picked the newer ones, and then we went through them and worked out what were the be- we thought were the best ones. Great. Um, and he wanted one new story, and but there's also there's another story in there, um, uh, um, Cassini falling, which yeah. was only published in a very obscure place, so it's pretty much. Yeah, and, and it was the yeah. most recent thing I'd written. And so, was that, of course, inspired by Cassini's crash? No, not no, at all. no, not in okay. the slightest. No, no um, or Cassini's Cassini, decommissioning, wasn't it? Yeah, because uh, Cassini is the the code name of uh, an assassin. Yeah, in the story, yeah. it is. Yeah. Oh, I was I was just sitting on a um, Rob and I after Worldcon Helsinki, we went on a a, a cargo ship that takes passengers around the Norwegian coast, as you do, and yep. it was fantastic. Um, but I'm sitting there just looking at all these people and it's like I just took all these notes because it was I was there. Awesome. I had no idea for a story whatsoever. I think this is a great writing tip. I do this a lot now. Mm-hmm. Just because you have no idea about what you could do with it doesn't mean you shouldn't be taking notes. And so mm-hmm. I took all these notes and eventually a year later a story occurred to me. So I already mm-hmm. had the notes. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. um yeah, so yes, I forgot the question, but hopefully um, it I... was uh, creating the the flow, the composition of the, oh, the collection. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, composition wise, yeah, it, it's about um, as someone who's put together anthologies myself or collect collections myself, it's um, you need to balance the work so it does flow, like you said. So yeah. I think you can thank Ian for that one. I think I suggested a. An order and he tweaked it. He, yeah. he moved things around to make it work better. I'm also really happy that I got to do the cover. I love uh, the cover. So it is your cover, I was going to ask. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I just said, like, can I do the cover? And he was like, yeah, all right. Oh, that wasn't too hard. Um, I, I'm As I mentioned at the start, I'm really interested in photographing textured walls, but essentially yeah. it's the, the bit where um, I look for things that are – it's like found art, like other. It's not so much just street graffiti, but bits where graffiti has mm-hmm. um, hit with advertising and weathering, and mm-hmm. maybe the form, other things, and mm-hmm. um, so I'm looking for natural compositions that come through all those processes. Very interesting. So at the moment I'm really interested in rusty skips, like with all mm-hmm. the – I found a couple of really good ones in Canberra. Rust but is nice. I've got some nice rust photos too, the contrast with the bright paint. and Exactly. Like yeah. rust, there are rust fanciers, like there are bird, there are yeah. bird people, there are rust people. There's all these art communities. Um, yeah, and the lichen people. There's li- Absolutely. <laughs> but that was yeah. a tiny bit of so – a piece of street art, so you've got the texture and it's it's a study of a bit of it. And it was in Hong Kong, yeah. in a back alley in Hong Kong. I spent the best week in Hong Kong with my cousin and her husband and just I just because they live there and I just spent a week. I just popped over before the pandemic, popped over with a really cheap flight. Yeah. Uh, and I spent a week pretty much solidly photographing grotty walls with cool. – um, with my cousin's husband Dave accompanying me because he knew where all the grot was. Oh, great. And, Nothing and like it, a local tour if you oh, have local knowledge. 
And so we'd do this all day. Uh, we'd, I'd go and take these photos and then at night because she was working and then at night we'd they'd take me out there in, in their early 30s. So they'd drag mm. me around all the cool places in Hong Kong. After a week they had to pull me back into the aeroplane. I was such a wreck. I slept all the way home. I was so tired because <laughs> I'd just been drinking and partying all night and photographing all day. But it was the best trip ever and that I do sounds- hope that it opens up again so I can – Go and do it in another country. Very fun. I want to come with you. Take me along. Definitely. Um, Now, I feel like, I hope this doesn't bug you, but I feel like a lot of your or some of your point of view characters are really unlikable. For example, Danielle in The Seventh Relic. She's a... You agree? Yeah, okay. So I empathise with her diet struggles, but her image and session and shallowness are are pretty riling. Then we've got Brandon in No Fat Chicks, um, who's an absolutely awful guy. Yep. Um, so can you talk a little bit about unlikable characters, what they bring to the story? Is it more fun to kill them? Does the reader want to see them suffer? Yeah, can you tell me a bit about what you like to write about them? Um, I th- for me, char- the characters like that are there to explain a point of view and I don't like them either. I, I don't want to kill them. I don't, I, but they, they're, re- they're real. I know these characters. Yeah, we right. move through life with these characters. So yeah. they're composites of real people mm-hmm. to me. Um, yeah. When I when I write likable characters, I guess I am hoping there's a bit of me in there somewhere, yeah. but I'm hoping there is none of me in Daniel and Brandon. They're just shockers. They're they're de- they're really devices. Then yeah, they, although they they closely mimic real people, but they are devices to show a point of view. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Cool. And you mentioned that um, No Fat Chicks was really hard to sell and yet it won a Ditmar Ditmar Award um, after Tahani built an anthology around it. Um, So why do you think that No Fat Chicks was so hard to sell? Is it a gatekeeper thing, a a male gatekeeper? I don't look. I, I I would I would have thought so, but I even tried a feminist magazine with it, and they wrote back to me and said they apologised for not taking it and they said, yeah. we, we can't really give you a good reason, but ooh, it's like <laughs> this story offended everybody. My yeah. my best reaction was from a, I will not name them, but a literary, big L literary magazine. Yeah. And the editor, a male editor, wrote back to me half a page explaining how human heterosexual sexual attraction works because they thought I didn't know. Right. It's like, look, you know, um, some people, I think they thought I was some some really unhappy man-hating lesbian as a result of that story. And yeah. I'm not unhappy. I do not hate men and I'm not a lesbian. So yeah. they just t- didn't get any of the boxes right. But um, yeah. but it was like, oh, you know, sometimes people are just attracted to different types. And it's like <laughs> it's a satire, you moron. I, I didn't obviously say that, but yeah. it's like the idea – but it really offended people. It offended, it offended men, but it offended women too. And how it got published was was literally I was just talking to Tahani, and I was like, "Where else can I try to sell this?" Absolutely, everyone said no. Yeah, I named a couple of not very good markets, and I said, "Which one of these is?" Yeah, and she was just got really curious. She just said, "Well, I, <laughs> you know, I." Give me a look. That much as a writer, somebody must want this. And she read yeah. it and she said, oh, she built the whole anthology around it, which yeah. I thought was amazing because um, everyone's got – and it turns out a lot of people have something that they can't sell and not because it sucks. Yeah. can't sell it because it just 
upsets people. That's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, look, it is interesting and I, I think and, and full marks to Tahani because I just, I think it's, yeah, I've never written anything before that has made people go ooh, ooh so much. Yeah. I'm a horror writer but, but a lot yeah. of my mark. You just um, hit a note there and I think that's really cool. And it's interesting because I, when I was writing that story, I actually believed, I thought, mm. aha, if I can write this well enough, mm. this will be the sort of thing, you know, this will be a, a Someone is going to snap this up. I, I don't even yeah. normally think that. Yeah. But I really thought I'd written something with something to say. Yeah. And I was I'm, really surprised. I really like it too. Like I think it's a really interesting concept and, you know, it's something that um, a, a lot of women struggle with their weight and men don't seem to as much and there is that element of sort of nasty sort of man who think that all women should be skinny like gazelle it's not even an element it's a a very large section of the population who are like Mm. that and in fact one of the things was a teacher friend was telling me she teaches year 11 and 12 boys Mm. and she said it came up in class once that the thing they were they were the question was what are you most afraid of in the world and they weren't saying like being mangled in a car accident or anything like that the answer was waking up in bed with a fat cheek yeah that's and that amazing, was it. And she it? was really, she was really annoyed. She was upset about that. Oh, yeah. And she said, "How can that be the worst thing that can happen to you? You know, think think about it. The worst thing. Wouldn't it be worse to be left a quadriplegic or something? No. Wow. It's amazing. And that's. I think that was actually the the trigger that that went straight to the story. Yeah. I think there was a few things had built up. Yeah. Um, that was the trigger. Okay. That's this. Hideous. <laughs> Canadians, young men. Well, on a brighter note, tell me about your birds. You're meeting a lot of beautiful birds of the feathered kind. These of the feathered kind, <laughs> not the other kinds of chicks. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, so yeah, moved to Canberra five years ago. Was never a. Uh, I've been a photographer my whole life, but not birds. Didn't have any particular interest interest in birds or even wildlife particularly. But the birds are interested in you, I see. The birds are interested in me and the thing where we live in MacArthur is there's a nature reserve behind us and birds just come to the yard and I just, I don't know what tipped me over the edge but suddenly I could see them everywhere. I was developing relationships with them, giving them names and I went and bought, yeah, because I couldn't travel, do any travelling like I wanted to this year, I went and bought a whopper of a lens, yeah, and a 500 mil uh, lens, and it it's just. And now I see them everywhere. I notice what they're doing, and now of course I've reached the point where I need to go and start seeing other birds. I, I'm really keen to go and find some gangangs because we don't have them up here. Right. But yeah, parrots, parrots and cockatoos and just pretty much anything. Um, and yeah, I, yeah. I I didn't choose them; they chose me. That's exactly what happened. Awesome. Is there anything else you want to chat about while we're here? Because we're about to wind up. About to wind up. Look, I think I've probably probably had um, said anything that I wanted to say. Thanks, Kat. It's been a fascinating chat. I've loved talking to you. Thanks very much, Helen. Hope I to hope with you in person again. And I so. hope 2021 is better for all of us. I hope it's better for all of we're us. We're nearly yes. there. Nearly there. Yes. Okay, see ya. Thanks. Bye.